morning. I'm glad that you're able to join us. It would be nice to have you here in the building, but for the next four Sundays, we'll be worshiping together this way. But we are adding one new feature to our online services. Once this service is over, you can join in with an online call and have a chat to others. Steve Hope has sent out details of that via email. So when this is over, you can check your email if you haven't already uh, noticed that, and then join us if you'd like to. It's the closest we can get to our normal coffee time at the moment. So thank you to Steve for setting that up, and I encourage you to try it at least this week. And then more generally during this lockdown, do remember to pick up the phone and call people in the church. Let's make sure we look out for one another and especially those who are on their own during these weeks. Then another upgrade from the first lockdown is that we're going to continue our evening worship times online. So please plan on joining us again at 6 p.m. today, where we will be continuing in Matthew's Gospel. Then next Friday, uh, we're having a day of prayer. This is Uh, not just for us, but it's uh, more nationwide, and we're going to join in with it. That will consist of private or family prayers, and then also an online meeting as a church. Again, Steve will send out an email with details about that.
Those of you who have been filling shoeboxes, those were originally due to be back next Sunday, but that has been put back for a month because of the lockdown. So the boxes are now due on our first Sunday back in the building, which is December 6th. But if you want to drop them off before that, uh, you can take them to Alan and Mary Reeves' home. And if you don't know where that is, you could contact me. One more thing that I need to mention is that our AGM is postponed again. It had been rescheduled for next week, but we're going to have to wait a bit longer for that to take place. This is Remembrance Sunday, and we will be observing a time of remembrance as part of this service, but we're going to begin by focusing on the God who remembers us. No matter how insignificant we might feel, no matter how overlooked we actually might be by everyone else, we can rest in the fact that all our ways are known to our Father in heaven. So let's praise him as we sing together, all my ways are known to you.
Let's pray. Lord God, we have to admit that so much of our life is a mystery to us while it's happening. We understand so little of the things that happen to us and the things that happen around us. Sometimes we can look back and see things a bit more clearly after the fact, but mainly we grasp so little. We confess that to you. And we're so thankful for the truth that you do know. As clueless as we are, we rest in the fact that your knowledge is perfect. And we ask that today you will help us to be at peace. Give us peace in the truth that you know what's going on. And you will walk with us through it all. As we sang, you take our hand and you lead us through. So in our confusion and our concern, we look to you again and we ask you to lead us through. And in this time together this morning, as we sing your praise, will you lift us up? As we turn to your word in a few moments, will you speak to us and lead us through? Amen. This week, many of us are wearing poppies. The reason for that is that during the First World War, poppies were a common sight on the Western Front. They flourished in the soil that was churned up by the fighting and the shelling. And so the poppy became a powerful symbol, not only of honoring the dead, but also of hope and life rising out of death, out of the ashes of destruction. Artificial poppies were first sold here in the UK in 1921, and they were sold to raise money for ex-servicemen and the families of those who had died. And we wear these poppies to remember those who gave their lives in the armed forces, not only in the First World War, but also in every conflict since then. We owe them a lot. They sacrificed everything in service to this country. And we wear these poppies to show our commitment. We will not forget them. We will honor them. And so wherever you are, I'd invite you to please stand with me now, and together we will observe two minutes of silence.
Thank you. I mentioned that the poppy is not only about remembrance, it also symbolizes hope and life rising out of death. And of all people, we as Christians should be able to resonate with that because we have a faith that is grounded in good news of life beyond death. We worship a Savior who rose from death, and He rose so that we could share in His eternal life. Our next song celebrates that good news of life out of death. We have heard a joyful sound, Jesus saves. And again, please join in singing this song.
you have a Bible, we're going to turn to the book of Judges. And this morning we're going to read Judges chapter 16. Judges 16. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with man hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. 
No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding corn in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. This is God's Word. And it centers on a close shave. I don't say that as a joke. This passage divides into two sections. The first section builds up to Samson's haircut, and the second section hinges on the fact that he is never given a second haircut. So let's start with the build up to that haircut. On the first part of our passage, we see Samson in a dance with darkness. 
Commentators on the book of Judges point out that no other judge in this book has as much potential as Samson. In chapter 13, we heard about his birth. We heard that even in the womb, he was set apart for God. As a young man, the Spirit of God gave him supernatural strength. None of the other judges had that. Samson had so much potential. And his mission in life was to begin delivering Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. Yet what we see from Samson is a man who seems to be uninterested in Israel. He seems much more intrigued by the Philistines. In chapter 14, he was determined to have a Philistine wife. And here at the beginning of chapter 16, he hooks up with a Philistine prostitute. Verse 1 says, he went down to Gaza. That was a Philistine city about 45 miles from Samson's home. Today, we often hear about the Gaza Strip in the news. It's a political hotspot even today. In Samson's time, it was the heart of Philistine territory. And he seems to be drawn to it like a magnet. Each time we see Samson, he is venturing deeper and deeper into Philistine territory. First, we saw him go to Timnah, just a few miles from his home. Then, he went to Ashkelon, and now, even further, into Philistine heartland in Gaza. We're not told why he went. Presumably, he didn't travel 45 miles on foot just for a prostitute. But whatever he went for, he's easily distracted. At the end of chapter 15, he prayed that he would not fall into the hands of the Philistines. But here he is, putting himself in the perfect position to fall into their hands. In verse 2, word gets around that Samson is in town. That shows us how famous he's become. He's already clashed with the Philistines several times. Most recently, We've heard about the clash at Lehi, where he killed a thousand Philistines. So the Philistines in Gaza see this as a great opportunity for them. But they also know enough by now to be wary of Samson. He is a formidable enemy. So rather than storm the place, they decide to ambush him as he leaves the city. But Samson humiliates his enemies again. In the night, he tears loose the city gate, which must have been massive, and he carries it on his back to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. That is 40 miles from Gaza. It's the main city of Judah, so this is an Israelite town. It would have taken Samson several days to lug the gate that far. Why does he do this? I guess this is the equivalent of Tarzan beating his chest and bellowing so all the jungle can hear. The gate of Gaza is like a trophy of war. Samson is parading his achievement on a hilltop. So everyone knows he's the man. 
He can do whatever he wants. He can stroll into Philistine strongholds and take what he wants. He can dance with the darkness and get away with it. In, in verses 1 to 3, the word night is used four times. And it becomes a theme for this whole chapter. Samson spends his time toying with darkness, thinking he can always walk away when he wants to. That's emphasized in what comes next. Verse 4 says, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Delilah is the third woman Samson's been involved with, or at least she's the third one we've heard about. But she's the, also the only one who is named. Why give us her name, but not the others? I think the reason is, her name just happens to be very appropriate to the situation. We've just seen that in verses 1 to 3, the word night was mentioned four times. And the name Delilah sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for night. So every time we hear her name, and we hear it seven times in this passage, every time we hear it, we're reminded Samson's name means little son or sunny boy. But he spends his life flirting with darkness. And in that sense, he is a miniature version of Israel. Israel as a people was supposed to be different. They weren't supposed to be like the nations around them. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to display the character of their God. But we've seen in this book how they are intrigued by the darkness around them. Instead of being the light they're called to be, Israel would rather fool around with darkness, prostituting themselves to the false gods of the nations. Israel is like Samson. And you and I can be like him too. When we are more interested in playing with sin than being a light for God. When we'd rather be just like everybody else than stand out and be different. We can be like Samson too when we imagine we can play with sin and get away with it. That's what we've seen Samson do in Gaza. And he did get away with it there. And he seems to believe he can always get away with it. By now, the Philistines realize they cannot defeat Samson unless they can find the secret of his superhuman strength. And more importantly, find out how to deprive him of that strength. And so Delilah is just what they're looking for. Verse 4 has told us Samson fell in love with her. We were not told that about his other women. So he feels something more for Delilah than he did for the others. But it turns out the love is all one way in this relationship. Delilah isn't going to let romance get in the way of a good business deal. 
Look at verse 5. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. The Philistine rulers are offering a colossal amount of money here. They're offering 1,100 shekels each, and there are at least five rulers of the Philistines because there are five major cities in Philistia. That's at least 5,500 shekels, which historians say equates to several million in our money today. And it makes sense for them to pay this much. Samson might be only one man, but he is the equivalent of a whole army. He's a one-man superpower. As far as the Philistines are concerned, if Delilah can bring him down, it will be millions well spent. And she doesn't hesitate. There's no indication or no hint here that she agonizes over the decision. It's not personal for her. It's just business. And she gets straight to business in verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. I said that Delilah is all business, but Samson doesn't know that. Yes, this is a very direct question, but no doubt Delilah asks it seductively, like a lover who wants to be his soulmate. What could be more intimate than to share his deepest secrets with the woman he loves? to be completely open and vulnerable with her. She is asking Samson to trust her completely, to live dangerously, to tell her what he has never told anyone else. And even though he knows he daren't tell her, he doesn't walk away. He begins playing a game with her. How close can he dance with the darkness before the darkness gets him? So in verse 7, Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. We're told the Philistines are hidden in the room, but apparently they never show themselves because Samson breaks free and so they stay hidden. So Samson is left guessing. Is this a weird bedroom game Delilah is playing with him? He decides he's going to keep playing. Second time around, he suggests he tries new ropes. But again, he snaps the ropes and the Philistines stay out of sight. But even though he hasn't seen the Philistines, we have to ask, 
Why does Samson keep going with this? Is he monumentally thick? Is he dim-witted? Is this a case of a man who's all brawn and no brain? I don't think so. I'm not particularly smart, but I think after a couple of rounds of this, even I would get suspicious and pack my bags. I don't think Samson stays because he's a numbskull. The writer of Judges gives us a big hint as to why he stays. He stays because deep down, he wants to be like any other man. He's not like any other man. His life is God's. Dedicated to God, remember, from the womb until the day of his death. His mission is to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But deep down, it seems, Samson wants to be one of the Philistines. Yes, we've seen when they hurt him, he will fight them. When he's in trouble, yes, he will call them the uncircumcised. But the rest of the time, he is drawn to them. He wants Philistine women instead of Israelite women. And we find him going after them again and again. Samson knows his life is the Lord's. But every time Delilah asks, what is your secret? He says, if you do this to me, I'll be like any other man. Not dedicated to God. Not separated from the rest of the idol-worshipping world. He seems to long for that. And so he circles closer and closer to telling her the truth. The first time he mentioned bowstrings, then it was new ropes. But the third time Delilah asks him, he dances a little closer to the darkness. He mentions his hair. His hair that's never been cut. His hair that truly is the secret of his strength. He's flirting with disaster on a new level now. But he gets away with it. He tells Delilah to weave it into her loom somehow, and again he escapes. But Delilah senses she's getting closer to the truth. So she ups the pressure in verse 15. She said to him, how can you say I love you? When you won't confide in me. This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Now we have no doubt that Samson is fully aware of his high calling in life. He knows who he is. 
He's a man set apart for God. And all that we've seen him do, all his flirting with the Philistines, his flirting now with Delilah, it has not been done in ignorance. It's been done in denial of who he knows himself to be. And here again, we see this fascination with being like any other man. He's drawn to that, and now he has crossed the line. Delilah knows it. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. This man has spent his life dancing with the darkness, venturing deeper and deeper, spinning closer and closer to disaster, playing with forbidden things, things that denied his destiny as a man set apart for God. And yet he believed he was invincible. Every other time he's been able to escape. Pick up a donkey's jawbone and thrash an army with it. Pick up the city gate and walk away with it. Snap the ropes on his arms like they were threads. He thought he could always step back from the brink and escape. But not this time. He has played games with years with his God-given ability. He's wasted it playing with darkness. And now it's gone. Now he really is just like any other man. He's free of his hair and all that it stood for, dedication to God. But Samson's new freedom is misery. Verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding corn in the prison. Samson spent his life dancing with the darkness. And now he finds himself in total darkness, unable even to see his hand in front of his face. And look where he is, in Gaza, the place where once he uprooted the city gate and carried it away. Samson had once taken 300 foxes and used them to burn down the Philistines' corn. Now he sits in prison, grinding their corn for them. 
What happened to Samson is a terrible warning to Israel because they are like him. They're drawn to sin in denial of who they are as God's special people. They want to be just like all the other nations. And yet they believe they're invincible. Surely, they think, God will always dig them out of whatever hole their sin gets them into. But generations after this, after God's people had continued to live in denial of who they are, the book of 2 Kings records how the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, had his eyes gouged out. And he was led away to captivity in Babylon. But this time it wasn't just one man, it was the whole people who fell into the hands of the enemy. God wants his people to see it is not safe to dance with darkness. You are not invincible. Dance with the darkness long enough and you'll end up in total darkness. The sin that fascinated you will bring you to ruin and misery. And that's the challenge for us too. We're all different. We all have different temperaments. We have different weaknesses. But for all of us, there will be some area of sin that appeals to us. It might be sexual sin like Samson. Or some other physical urge. Or it might be something very, very different. We might be drawn to use our words to cut and injure others. Isn't that what everyone else does? They just lash out. They just get it off their chests. Why should we restrain our tongue? Won't it make you feel better just to let it loose? Tear a few strips off somebody? Maybe the sin that draws you like a magnet is the sin of working against others, harming their reputation to try and build up your own. Or we might be drawn to feed our love for leisure and an easy life. We might start resenting our God-given responsibilities to family, to other Christians, to neighbors. And so we withdraw from our responsibilities because we deserve a life that's all about me, or at least a good bit more about me. We might be tempted to tinker with a little bit of fraud. It is not unheard of for Christians to get tangled up in cooking the books. We're all different, but we all have some area of life where we are drawn to darkness, to toy with sin, to deny our high calling as God's people. People who are different, who are lights in the darkness. 
Samson's life is a warning. Don't mess around with whatever sin you're drawn to. It will not end well. You are not invincible. You cannot dance with sin and think you'll escape misery. The last part of this passage is still about Samson. At least on the surface it is. But this last section is really about the God who remembers. We left Samson shaved and blind in a Philistine prison. But verse 22 says, as he sat in prison, his hair began to grow again. Well, of course it did. And in any other context, that would be too obvious a thing to mention. But here, the hair is the thing. It has great significance. Because even if Samson despised his Nazarite status, God did not. You see, we might be wondering, what was the point of the Nazarite thing anyway? What significance did it really have? We might say that because we know Samson was to avoid three things because he was a Nazarite. He was to avoid any product of the vine. He was to avoid dead bodies. And he was to avoid haircuts. But as we've read about his life, we've seen him breaking all three of those commitments. So what was the Nazarite vow worth, really? Well, the bottom line is, Samson may have been unfaithful to the Nazarite vow, but God will not be unfaithful. This man has descended into self-inflicted misery and darkness, but God will still have this man for himself. He will still use this man for his own purposes. Very soon, this man will be long-haired again. And God will use him again. Verse 23 tells us, Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to gather to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. So now this is not just about Samson versus the Philistines. Now it's about the Philistines' God versus Samson's God. Dagon versus Yahweh, the Lord. And right now, all the praise is going to Dagon. For 20 years, Samson has been a thorn in the Philistines' side. And now it seems their God has come through for them. Dagon be praised. But if we are at all familiar with the Bible... We know the God of the Bible is not a God who surrenders his glory. He will not let the glory that belongs to him go to a lifeless idol. 
We know the Philistines are on thin ice here as they sing hymns of praise to Dagon. And verse 25 says that the high point of the evening is when their great enemy is brought out to perform for them. Goodness knows what that involved. Maybe it was entertainment enough just to watch this one man's superpower reduced to stumbling about, tripping over his own chains. A helpless joke, dependent on a young boy to lead him. But as Samson performs for them, an idea begins to form in his mind. Verse 26, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. So there would have been many more people on the main floor. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Remember me, Samson prays. And he doesn't say that because he thinks he has slipped out of God's mind. When he says, remember me, he is asking God to get involved in this situation. Not just to watch, but to remember the Nazarite vow and the special relationship that went with the vow. When he says, remember me, Samson is asking God to be faithful where Samson himself has not been faithful. Now, it's positive that Samson recognizes God's character and power. He knows this is the sovereign Lord. But on the negative side, notice what Samson's motivation is. There's nothing here about God's honor. There's nothing about saving Israel from her enemies. There's not even a request for personal forgiveness here. What Samson wants is revenge for his two eyes. But God cares about the honor of his own name. God cares about saving his people. And so as Samson stretches out his arms, his right hand on one pillar, his left hand on the other, he becomes Israel's savior. Through his death, God delivers his people by crushing their enemies. As Samson pushes, the pillars come down and the Philistines are destroyed. The job is not complete, of course. Before he was born, the angel told Samson's mother he would only begin to deliver God's people. It was King David, 200 years later, who would crush the Philistines for good. And it was David's descendant, Jesus Christ, who defeated the greatest enemies of all. 
as Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, he not only died himself, he put death to death. We no longer have to be slaves to death and darkness and sin. Jesus died because we have a God who remembers. He remembers our weakness. He remembers that we cannot save ourselves. And he is faithful. He remembers his commitment to save a people for himself. Earlier this morning, we took time to remember those who died serving our country. And on this Remembrance Sunday, we can praise God that he does a much better job of remembering than we do. He never forgets his promise to create a new people with new hearts. People cleansed from the guilt of sin. Delivered from the power of sin. God never forgets his promise and he never stops working to fulfill his promise. To bring life and hope out of the ashes of sin and death. So if you are tangled up in sin, you can be free from it. Jesus can set you free. God has promised, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He has promised, whoever looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Those are God's promises and he does not forget his promises. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you profess to be a Christian, your calling is not to flirt with sin. Like that's where the real fulfillment is in life. Your calling is to turn your back on sin every day and cling to Jesus every day. Sin leads us into darkness. But when we turn from sin back to our Savior, God remembers. He forgives. And he helps us walk in his light. That is true life. So as we close, let's take our own responsibility seriously. To treat sin like an enemy and not like a friend. And let's praise our God for his forgiveness and his faithfulness. Forgiveness and faithfulness that flow to us through Jesus Christ. So let's join in singing in thanks and praise. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.
move 